is a wonderful speaker. Um, it's Arthur Kim, who's at Massachusetts, Massachusetts General. He is uh, an ID trained guy, but who works a lot in hepatology, especially with hepatitis C and some in hepatitis B as well. His, he's on the guidelines committee and is a co-chair of that committee. And he's gonna give us an update on hep C management, um, curing is caring, and has a menu of all kinds of options. All right. Well, if you need a bathroom break or whatnot, I'll try to start slow so you won't miss uh, too much content. Uh, my uh, objectives today, um, are first of all, my disclosures, I don't have anything to disclose. If I mention treatment of acute hepatitis C, there's no specific label for that, and um, the learning objectives. So um, in addition to trying to keep, the, keep you awake as a major objective, um, I'm going to try to describe uh, modifiable risks um, uh, for liver disease progression, kind of um, a hepatology 101 in one slide. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the choices of uh, uh, antiviral regimens, the menu of choices, as Mike is alluding to. But overall, I want you to leave as an audience um, understanding the rationale for really pushing on screening, prevention, and treatment of hepatitis C. In 30 minutes, it's hard to cover that, but um, as you saw today in five talks, five excellent talks, uh, I'll try to reflect back on each of those talks, actually, as I go through, because there are themes from the HIV world that we're clearly trying to apply to hep C, uh, just with fewer resources often. All right, so I throw up this slide. Um, since you're largely, as I saw at the beginning, a, an ID audience, uh, why we are ideal candidates for engaging in hepatitis C care. One is that, um, A, we're good at diagnosis, we're good at taking deep histories, and um, we're often um, uh, making, um, you know, asking the more detailed sexual history or the more uh, detailed travel crazy histories and things like that that we train our fellows for. Uh, we're often counseling against risk reduction and uh, future transmission. I mean, clearly, if you're involved in HIV, this is a major topic. Um, and then um, uh, we're used to using antiviral drugs. It affects the populations in, that we see, even if you're not, do, um, if you're just on the general consult wards, you see now, I believe, more and more complications, uh, either soft tissue infections or endocarditis, perhaps, uh, on your ID consults, depending on the nature of your local uh, injection epidemics. Um, and uh, there's now non-invasive approaches to liver staging. So if you've never been trained how to do a liver biopsy, um, you don't need to do that. And then uh, managing drug-drug interactions is something we're very used to doing. And finally, understanding the concepts of viral resistance, although there are some ways that varies between HIV and hep C. Overall, at least conceptually, we understand that. So here's uh, the first of two audience response questions in the talk. Uh, how long? Have you been involved in the treatment of hepatitis C? So there's a variety of choices, including not treating, um, uh, and uh, you as a practice deferring to hepatology, um, you don't treat, but others in your practice do as an ID physician, or I just started treating in the last two years, two to five years, five to 15, or greater than 15. So one more, I think, and we can get started. I think the choices are still up there. Sweet 
Okay, well, uh, of the responses, we're seeing a, a pretty uh, recent um, crowd. For those of you who avoided the interferon era, good for you. You avoided a tough time, and uh, many ID physicians did get involved, but um, uh, if you didn't, you avoided a lot of side effects. So, um, so it's much uh, easier these days. It's uh, interesting to see that distribution and whether this would change in, in future years uh, at this venue. So um, these slides are often given as an intro epidemiology. Uh, it's important to note um, that most of what we know comes from a household-based survey uh, known as NHANES. Um, from this, we know that a, at least half of individuals are unaware they are infected. That emphasizes how silent this infection is, both at the time of transmission, as most acute cases are asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic, and then through the chronic phase uh, before there's fibrosis or cirrhosis, which uh, on average takes 20 to 30 years. And um, many people were infected back in the um, uh, 60s, 70s, and 80s when there were uh, young persons. And for a variety of reasons, unsafe injection, unsafe blood supply, as well as the rise of uh, post-World War II injection drug use, uh, a lot of individuals were infected in our country then and now are approaching this sort of tidal wave of this bolus of patients, so to speak. But the numbers are staggering. This is at least uh, 3 million persons, we believe. And due to the nature of NHANES, which is a kind of phone, household-based uh, recruitment strategy, uh, you'll often miss people. You'll miss homeless uh, uh, persons, you'll miss incarcerated, those are not outside their homes, veterans, potentially active military, those uh, away, and healthcare workers who are, I guess, too busy to be at home or something and not uh, represented well in the survey. Another group might be young persons. I don't know how, how you're, um, if you have young kids, whether they're answering their phones at all or they're all on texting and Snapchat and all that, and whether they'd, uh, they would be represented in NHANES at all. So um, the estimates uh, vary a bit, but um, at least three times as many people likely are infected with uh, hepatitis C than HIV. And so uh, this is uh, just a magnitude of uh, epidemic that has been generally um, underdressed, although steps are taken now with novel treatments to uh, completely change that. So you've heard of this baby boomer screening. How many of you have heard of baby boomer screening? All right. Yeah, the vast majority of you. So if you're born between 1945 or 65, that is a patient that you'd be uh, interested in offering a one-time test if never screened before. And believe me, we continue to make these diagnoses today. The uptake of this has been highly variable. But this is a very important group because that they are 20, 30, 40 years after their infection and at risk for that cirrhosis, which can also be silent. And so on average, hepatitis C takes away 20 years of life not quite as dramatic as untreated HIV, but that, that, is, uh, that is very significant. And if you could remove that infection, it abrogates that to a large extent. And so um, uh, another slide, uh, hep C deaths, or those uh, listed on death certificates, exceed that of 60 infectious uh, conditions notifiable to the CDC on death certificate data. Now there are many infections that are notifiable that don't kill you, so, but it's still quite a statistic if you think about it, that that these other 60 conditions don't quite add up to the number of people dying of hepatitis C. I think a, a lot of the trainees had to probably go back to the hospital, but if you've recently been on the wards, we know this, that uh, hepatitis C is the leading cause of cirrhosis. There's um, medical wards that are full of people who are suffering from these end-stage complications and at risk for dying. And so a leading cause of death amongst adults in their 50s in the um, uh, United States and disproportionately affecting African-Americans, um, the HIV population, uh, 
that we know, and uh, as many of you know, in co-infection, it is the second leading cause of death, liver disease, and so we are still working towards uh, eradicating co-infection as well as, as we'll talk about mono-infection. So this is an age distribution of uh, hepatitis C in Massachusetts on the uh, x-axis is decade, if you can't read it, and then uh, the stacked bars indicate males and females. And again, in 2002, you see this um, two to one male to female ratio. You see this group now, they would be closer to 60 mean age if you went forward 15 years from 2002. But 2009, we saw this shift. And this system in Massachusetts is one of the more robust ones that can really capture every positive test now that's sent. So if it pings positive, an antibody on any Massachusetts resident, it's supposed to show up in the system. It's an automated type of system. And then they get more information from the provider. And what you're seeing here is this bimodal distribution of uh, young people under 30, uh, one to one male to female ratio indicating uh, that hepatitis C is an equal opportunity uh, virus. Um, and you're even seeing some positive tests being sent in um, infants. That's that, if you can notice that line of uh, under one. And those are largely probably inappropriately or early tests of antibody that were transmitted from women of childbearing age. But if you think about the future of the hepatitis C epidemic, there's kind of another burgeoning epidemic all related to opioids, which you've already heard about from Dr. Cunningham. And so just given the magnitude of opioid use, you know, maybe a million people injecting heroin in any given year, people cycling in and out of that behavior, and unfortunately, we have adolescents growing up creating a new supply of people who might become addicted to painkillers and, and, um, and transition to IV heroin. Uh, the numbers are pretty staggering. Tens of thousands of Americans are likely being infected. But again, it's very difficult to know based on without good zero surveys. And so um, we are estimating that based on acute cases and this uh, epidemic just could be of, of, of major magnitude. And what happens if you leave it alone? Well, uh, this is somewhat of a unique situation. Um, in a, uh, if you haven't heard of this, how many of you have heard of the Scott County, Indiana HIV outbreak? All right, all right, so many of you. So uh, as, uh, as of the CDC report in MMWR, it was 135 cases and it rose to around 180. And this was triggered by just a local person noting, hey, we've had a few extra HIV cases. This is odd. Uh, we usually don't have this many. Uh, over a short period of time, and, and it instigated a massive response trying to understand it. And it was all related to injection of oxymorphone, a prescribed uh, opioid that was, uh, that's, uh, can be crushed. And it needs a high amount of, of diluent fluid, and that's part of the reason why uh, individuals had, they had high dead spaces in their syringe. And from studies way back when, we knew that that was the situation where HIV, once it's in the syringe, not easily um, uh, sort of removed and it remains infectious. And then uh, if you have a situation where you can't replace clean needles and syringes, where they had virtually no um, sort of those harm reduction measures that are present in many uh, jurisdictions, then what happens? This is an unfortunate outcome. And I have to say the last new HIV uh, patient that I saw was a 60-year-old man uh, who had previously used cocaine but was tested hep C negative as a baby boomer. And then um, he uh, had a few things happen in his life and he ends up addicted to uh, opioids, uh, including after a major surgery. And tries heroin, uh, gets homeless and gets involved with a 27-year-old woman and comes down with both hep C and HIV uh, in our jurisdiction. So it, this just shows you that people who inject drugs or P PWID, um, 
they're, they're at risk, and anything that we do to prevent an HIV case, we're talking a lot today about that from Elvin's talk and many other, and uh, Dimitri's talk. Uh, what are we doing about hep C? The hep C that was present in Scott County was present there for years, right? You could imagine drug use and whatnot. It was underdiagnosed, underaddressed, and really nobody cared. So again, just showing what happens if we don't care. And also emphasizes the importance of hep C prevention and vaccine. The other group uh, relevant particularly to this audience are HIV positive MSM. And uh, this shows kind of the synergy of a syndemic, so to speak, of overlapping behaviors that drive hepatitis C transmission. In particular, um, uh, certain bloody practices, other ulcerative STDs, uh, semen exposure, all of these in various outbreaks in Europe and in the US have been implicated with hepatitis C and HIV positive MSM. Uh, only a fraction of these individuals inject drugs seemingly. Uh, in, when you ask these surveys, some are around 20%, maybe as high as 30% depending on the setting. So most of the hep C is coming without necessarily injection. And um, uh, crystal meth is definitely involved. Now I'll point out that sildenafil does not directly transmit hep C in the pill, but it just facilitates the behaviors, as does the internet, the matchups, the number of partners, et cetera. And so that, um, what Dimitri, and, uh, and as you well know, the sort of syndemic of STDs. Now, interestingly, I, um, in HIV negative MSM, when they've started PrEP, there's hep C testing at baseline. And there, they've begun to see it, and reported at Croy and other places, a reasonable percentage of men who have hepatitis C. And in, in the Netherlands, when they tested that virus, they showed overlap between uh, those strains and the strains that are circulating currently amongst the HIV-positive MSM. Now, in the past, there may have been some natural serosorting going on, where HIV neg and was sort of having uh, relations with people who are HIV negative. As PrEP rolls out, will we see more uh, sort of admixture of these two populations and see hepatitis C crossover? So uh, important for anyone thinking about PrEP. So screening. I've described how hepatitis C is a, is a common condition. It's a chronic infection in, in the majority of individuals infected, although some people can clear on their own. It is a candidate for screening with that long latent time. You can really do a lot of good by identification early and preventing the steady liver damage that can occur. And of course, just like diabetes, you don't want to wait until you have complications of the kidney and the eyes and, and the nerves, you want to treat it early and control the sugars. That's a very apt analogy for earlier treatment of hepatitis C. And especially for those with liver disease, you can make a big impact in uh, extending lives. And whom to screen in brief, baby boomers, those with past on and ongoing risk factors. Uh, there's a list that I hid, um, but that I tried to include in your handout. Uh, but the major focus should be injection drug use and people who inject drugs. Now, there are going to be a spectrum, there's always a spectrum of, of uh, drug use, and there are going to be people who kind of dabble in it, kind of resolve it, and move on, and, along with the people who go on to, uh, uh, you know, uh, more addictive um, uh, behaviors that last for years. And so those will be obvious to treat, but there's going to be young people who we miss otherwise if we don't really delve into their histories. And so it does raise the question of whether we should be screening more aggressively. If you know in your jurisdiction that you have a high prevalence under 30, whether more individuals should be screened. Now, a couple of tips. Uh, if you can get reinfected once you're cleared, so if you spontaneously cleared it on your own, or if your treatment and it's a common question for, for hepatitis C uh, when we teach about it. Can you get reinfected? Of course. Like there's different strains, there's different genotypes, and you're, if you have immunity, you may not be likely to fight off another strain. 
And so for those individuals who are already hep C antibody positive, you must use the more expensive hep C RNA test. And another little tip is to react to elevated LFTs. So if you're following, you know, in your Ryan White or other clinic every three months getting those labs and seeing an LFT bump, um, sometimes you think, oh, is it the antiretrovirals? But we know that most modern a ARVs don't uh, really cause that much hepatotoxicity. So uh, one thing you should do is screen for hepatitis C, both with antibody and RNA for those individuals. And so react to those tests, otherwise patients will be out there with unknown status and potentially spreading. So turning a little bit just to tell you the goals of treatment, and um, while there are people who would benefit more quickly than others, really the goal of treatment is to reduce that all-cause mortality, restore those, on average, 20 years of lost life, um, those liver-related health adverse consequences, the H hepatocellular carcinoma, if you're not aware, solid tumors, hepatocellular carcinoma is the one that's rising in our country, driven by the hepatitis C epidemic as well as fatty liver, whereas breast cancer, lung cancer, all those are flat. And so we are seeing more liver cancer. And then uh, if you achieve a virologic cure, which is commonly referred to as a sustained virologic response, that what that means is after therapy, 12 weeks, if you're negative, you're negative and you're not going to have a relapse pretty much 99.9 something percent of the time. And it's durable unless you're reinfected. However, and so treatment is recommended for all patients, and one might ask, well, why all patients? Why not just those people? I've already made the diabetes um, uh, argument, but um, as, as if Glenn Treisman were here as part of your package, he would tell you about the bad effects of viruses on the brain. And so neurocognitively, you can test hep C um, positive people, and they have um, worse scores that can uh, somewhat get better after hepatitis C cure. Similarly, quality of life, uh, there's a risk of diabetes confirmed by hepatitis C. There are so many reasons why you wouldn't want this. And the simple question is, if you had this virus for however you got it, what would you want? Would you want to wait until you have advanced fibrosis, or would you want to be treated? So um, the key issues to determine prior to initiation of treatment, and I would really invite you to come to perhaps next year's IAS hep C event that would dissect each of these elements in more detail, um, but uh, is to determine, A, do they have you know, competing uh, life expectancy issues, if they're dying or have metastatic breast cancer, their hep C is really not the main issue, for instance, that is the one group that um, we say um, should not be treated necessarily. If you have end-stage liver disease, on the other hand, that's a priority to uh, address the hepatitis C. The factors that affect natural history include alcohol, and so uh, it's, it's, uh, one should definitely monitor for uh, problem alcohol use, and as you know, that's very underreported often. And then um, HIV and hepatitis B, the two viruses that come because of shared risk factors with this. Immunizations are important, and um, it's amazing how hepatitis A and B uh, are sometimes underaddressed due to lack of funding, due to um, lack of availability. Right now, in, um, oh, I shouldn't say right now, in the past year, there have been two outbreaks centered around injection drug users, one in Maine of hepatitis B, 29 cases, all preventable, right, if we were able to immunize. And then hepatitis A, actually, in southeastern Michigan, recently spilled over. We've always known that drug users have a higher rate of hepatitis A, um, uh, and then uh, that spilled over, actually, to the general population as well in southeastern Michigan. There's a current outbreak where, where the drug users are, are implicated as, as kind of a reservoir. 
factors that regimen, that affect regimen choice, of course the genotype of the virus, uh, now seven genotypes, but you'll pretty much only encounter one through four probably in this country. Um, and then uh, the, the viral load um, can matter for certain regimens. The interferon experience or past experience of uh, treatment does affect things. Uh, current medications and drug-drug interactions are vital and cirrhosis and staging. And so the simple recommendation without going into the details is that one should evaluate for advanced fibrosis in, in virtually all patients. Uh, one should look for on physical exam for signs of uh, liver disease and one can now use non-invasive testing, largely a test called Fibrosure and another test known as Fibroscan or transient elastography. How many of you have heard of transient elastography? Okay, that's increasing. How many have access to that for their patients? Okay, that's definitely higher than a couple years ago at, at most of these settings that I've talked at. Now, uh, access and adherence, um, a lot of these themes have already been alluded to that we know that patients suffering from um, viral diseases, chronic viruses, can have um, additional factors that affect their adherence to medications. And so uh, these are very important. Uh, and then factors that affect their future infection risk. Um, you know, we really want to not say goodbye to the patient without counseling them how to avoid having to go through a second hepatitis C uh, infection. That would be, not be, it's like, um, you know, you meet someone in an STD clinic and they have syphilis, you kind of want to prevent the next episode of syphilis, very similar. And then the, um, uh, the cirrhosis, the renal function is important, and drug-drug interactions. And I'll point out, I'll show it later, there's a University of Liverpool website, which is wonderful for both HIV and hepatitis C, very user-friendly, you can type in almost any drug and I'll give you kind of the quick green um, go, uh, yellow, some caution, or red, do not co-administer certain meds. So the hepatitis C cares more than about the meds. I'm about to tell you in a very short period of time uh, about the meds, but it is really honestly more. And so there's, there's various parts that are a part of this, I, and you can be taught to do this. This is, um, uh, this is well within the reach of ID physicians who've been managing complicated, with psychosocial issues, HIV patients for a long time. Now, one uh, thing, I do actually have a visual aid. I will point out that I do not have any stock in this company or Dunkin' Donuts or any other coffee company, but uh, uh, this is a French study that looked uh, at co-infected patients, and not surprisingly, um, uh, they saw kind of what we see, uh, that deaths uh, often were from hepatitis C-related causes. Um, uh, uh, very frequently in co-infected patients. And the risk factors for death are perhaps not surprising to you, unstable housing, um, uh, being a lower CD4 count. Um, protective was having a hep C cure. I mean, you see, that's a pretty nice odds ratio, as well as being female and having fewer drinks. But coffee, actually independently on multivariate analysis, also had a positive effect. I actually do counsel patients about coffee, at least not to give it up. Now another question that frequently gets asked is marijuana. Marijuana is neutral in some co-infected cohorts that followed liver fibrosis progression. It doesn't mean that it's good, like some patients here, and they say, oh, he said it was good. I just said it was neutral. I didn't say it was bad or good. It doesn't protect your liver, so to speak. So care for hep C is not all about treatment, is really the bottom line, and there's a variety of uh, extra things we do as physicians to, and caregivers um, uh, to, to help patients through the treatment and beyond. And so I think uh, there's a national shortage of access to hepatitis C care, and um, attending a course like the IAS USA puts on around the country, uh, or uh, various other courses online at the University of Washington um, could teach you how to do this.
Now, to talk about treatment, um, these are the targets. This is the viral life cycle from entry to exit. Uh, the couple points I'd point out, um, one is that this virus doesn't enter the nucleus, right? It's not a DNA virus at any point in its intermediate, and it's curable. So all the problems that you heard about from uh, Dr. S uh, Silicano's talk are not present here in hep C because the virus, even though it can establish a chronic infection, you can eradicate it from this cell, from all the cells, and from the host. The three targets are the protease, the NS5A and the NS5B polymerase, and uh, protease and polymerase being familiar targets from HIV. And as we've learned, combination um, therapy has been the mainstay. We're going to apply it to different genotypes, and predominantly we see genotype 1A in our country. You see more 1B um, amongst African Americans uh, infected 20, 30, 40 years ago. And you see about 20% of patients with genotypes 2 and 3. Now I'll point out that young injection drug users or people who inject drugs have a higher rate of genotype 3 circulating, almost 30%, um, so higher than the baby boom. So you will encounter that. Do not be surprised. Uh, and then genotype 4 in Egypt, 5 in South Africa, and 6 mostly in Asia. And um, here you see a kind of a rainbow. I have to pre-apologize if you're red-green colorblind, but um, peginterferon, red, danger, never use it. But that's, that's all we'll talk about for peginterferon. I'm glad you've missed that era. Ribavirin is still used in select circumstances uh, in combination with other drugs. And first-generation protease inhibitors, bisepravir, telaprevir, are no longer used. And then there are next-generation um, protease inhibitors in green, NS5A inhibitors in blue, and purple are uh, both non-nuke and nuke. This is great that we have this audience to, uh, that's a familiar concept for, from HIV. And again, we're applying it to genotypes, and that's the genotype distribution 15 years ago in our liver clinics at Mass General. So no, none of those. One theme is that if you have multiple negative factors, it's possible that it could add up to these treatments, these novel treatments that work so well not working so well, and this is just a aggregate data. Now, when you have 90, 95% cure rates, there's a small number of people who don't respond, and so most of the smaller studies are unable to dissect just due to power, like why did these people relapse? But when you look across studies, if you start to add up factors such as prior treatment experience and failure due to interferon, if you add up a certain gene known as IL-28B, male sex, a high body mass index, cirrhosis, et cetera, and a high viral load, one could possibly add to this list also resistance, which we'll get into very briefly later. But if it's really, you can overcome one or two of those with these medications. You see the number of negative risk factors. The, if you reach five or six, though, the initial therapies didn't work quite so well. And so there are certain individuals, treatment experience plus cirrhosis, that we really worry about, and you often need to do extra floor. Now, um, antiviral treatments, this is, I think, the right slide. This gets updated every few months, as you may know. Um, there's a lot of potential combinations, and they're color-coded, and there's some with certain genotypes, and there's some, this is, you know, potentially very dizzying um, menu of choices. However, one can simplify it to the, really, the rightmost column on the previous slide, um, and also you can simplify certain things, because certain ones that were available but come from two different companies, like, uh, Semeprevir plus Sofosavir, just by cost, often are uh, rarely accessible unless you're in a specialized retreatment situation. And so really we're talking mostly about these four regimens. And so I'll try to give a, a single sort of bullet about each of those uh, four regimens. 
Uh, these are two of the regimens, uh, the paratapravir, ritonavir, ambitasvir, dasabivir, ribavirin. Again, I uh, wish I could use the trade name there, but uh, we're supposed to try to stay away from that. Uh, that's a tongue twister. As well as the lodiposvir, sofosvir, a uh, fixed dose combination. These work quite well in genotype 1 patients and uh, in very large trials for the first combination, uh, three different classes plus ribavirin for 1A. And, um, and then lodiposvir, sofosvir. What you'll note is that uh, there's inclusion of cirrhotic patients and cirrhosis in many of these trials did not fall out uh, as a, uh, a problem for 12 weeks of lodiposvir, sofosvir unless one had treatment experience as I described. There's even a shorter course, which is the sixth column, which is eight weeks of lodiposvir sofosvir, showing uh, equivalence. If one had uh, particularly positive factors, um, then one can achieve cure. And so that is both uh, good from an adherence standpoint, eight weeks versus 12. Um, so at this point, we have great things to offer for genotype 1 patients, 95% cure. Now, there is this issue of shortening lodiposvir sofosvir to eight weeks. Uh, there was this 94% cure rate, but it was really individuals who had uh, HCV RNA levels greater than 6 million who seem to be in the relapse group. Um, now, is eight weeks um, uh, really applicable beyond that? It wasn't a randomized trial um, for the, those individuals, like selected those individuals. We are not, um, we don't really have the data in the real world because we could be selecting patients who have favorable characteristics for the eight weeks and fighting for you know, black patients, HIV positive patients for whom there are little data. So real world data do look good for eight weeks, but we're waiting some more before we can really say this could be used in certain subsets. And so for persons with uh, HIV, for African American patients or other potentially, I shouldn't say it's uh, uh, for, for characteristics that are associated with uh, less treatment response, then um, one can have caution using the, the eight week regimen. Now, uh, cirrhosis, uh, before I move on from lodiposvir sofosvir, I think I took out a slide that would actually answer the question, the post-test question. Lodiposvir sofosvir and its uh, sort of 2.0 version, sofosvir velpatosvir, uh, have issues with antacids. So those really decrease the absorption. And so one really ha does have to monitor that. how many of our patients are placed on a meprazole for some reason while they're in the hospital and they're just maintained on it. So A, address whether they need it at all. And then look at the package insert. You're allowed to use up to 20 milligrams for lodiposvir sofosvir, 20 milligram equivalent of a meprazole, or they're uh, like a 40 milligram for famotidine. But, um, uh, and you, you just need to watch that very carefully. The other issue with lodiposvir sofosvir um, is amiodarone. There's life-threatening um, bradycardia that has occurred with that combination, and while rarely encountered, it is something that we do rarely encounter, and so please do not co-administer and find an alternative to amiodarone uh, if you can. Now this regimen, the PROD regimen, to be short, uh, there's a warning about compensation, uh, uh, some decompensated um, uh, cases of decompensation in class uh, A cirrhosis. Uh, in addition, if one also had prior treatment experience, uh, there was a lower rate of response for cirrhotic patients, and so uh, extension to 24 weeks was recommended for this regimen. So while cirrhosis 
doesn't affect uh, as strongly Lidipasir sofosivir. It does affect this regimen and one should use 24 weeks. Now, um, here's uh, another newer regimen known as Elbasir grisoprevir using an NS5A inhibitor blue and a, a grisoprevir, a next generation NS5A inhibitor. I'm sorry, a protease inhibitor. And here there's nice inclusion of woman uh, and non-white race, including some cirrhotic patients, and excellent response rates for both genotypes one and four, a little less good for the few patients with six. And there's also a similar SVR rate for HIV co-infected individuals. And I took out this slide, but HIV co-infected individuals in general respond very similarly when you match by group and whatnot. We just kind of lack data for eight weeks in that, that group of Lidipasir sofosphere. So in general, though, you can kind of offer the same rates of um, cure. Cirrhosis did not impact this regimen nearly as much, just looking at cirrhosis versus non-cirrhotic patients. But what did affect it were resistance-associated variants. And so this is the one regimen where you really need to know their baseline resistance pattern. We found patterns when you talk uh, across the country that ID people really love to know things. So they send the resistance tests for everyone. And while it's uh, potentially convenient to have that information, you don't necessarily need that if you're using one of the other regimens. But for this regimen, you, you absolutely do need the NS5A resistance test. Because if you notice the tw lines 28, 30, um, 31, and 93, there are lower rates sort of in the 60 to 88% range, not what we'd like to see. And even though these are small numbers, it's recommended that you not only baseline test, but what do you do about it afterwards? You extend therapy. So you can overcome that by use of 16 weeks of this regimen or an additional month and by addition of ribavirin. And so it does affect your management to send the test. So here we have a situation, you have three different regimens. One, the Lodipasir sofosivir, you can sometimes shorten to eight weeks, and it has this issue with antacids. The next one does have major issues with cirrhosis in terms of extending therapy from 12 to 24 weeks. And this one, it's about resistance. Just kind of little flavors to each of these. Looking ahead to the menu question. So here uh, is our options for uh, renal disease. And so here you can see high cure rates. Uh, for patients with uh, stage four or five chronic kidney disease, which is excellent. And what you're not seeing, uh, you're, what you're seeing here is week two suppression, week four, et cetera. It's the end result that you're looking at where almost 99% of people were cured. Fantastic. So here's something. You or a loved one are facing end organ disease and are in need of a solid organ transplant. Due to this opioid epidemic, you could accept an organ from a high-risk donor that would shorten your wait time. Let's say you're hep C negative. Would you accept a hep C positive organ? Number one, no, an organ from a hep C infected person is far too risky. Number two, yes, depending on the genotype. Number three, yes, depending on the organ. I wouldn't do it for my liver. And yes, I'd accept an organ uh, given the opportunity for curative treatment afterwards. So I'd be interested to hear your choices. When I was six years old, I broke my leg. So the majority of you would accept that. And the first ones have actually been done for both kidneys as well as a lung transplant in Toronto. So this is very interesting to me. Nope, some are, at least 10% of you are thinking it's too risky. Well, we can cure people afterwards. Um, and so um, it's, it's interesting that the majority of you would be willing to accept that. Here's the pan-genotypic regimen that's most available and that's probably the most people's first-line choices for genotypes two or three, 12 weeks of uh, Sofosfer velpatosfer worked great across different genotypes, as well as even for genotype three, for which before we didn't have the best options without combining 
uh, two medications from two different companies. So given the uh, fixed dose combination here, now this one they could not shorten to eight weeks in one phase two trial. Um, so that's your best option there. Now there's this issue of hepatitis B reactivation. We think a little bit about HIV and hep C co-infection, but hep B can reactivate. If they have chronic hep B in particular, there have been some fatal cases uh, that have led to need for liver transplant. And so that usually occurs about eight to 12 weeks into treatment. It just really emphasizes the importance to rescreen or screen people at baseline to make sure they have hep B uh, negativity, either DNA or surface antigen. Core antibody, there's one case of a reactivation, and it's a confusing case because they had other comorbidities. Uh, it was a severe outcome, uh, need for liver transplant. Um, other studies that have followed up show that in hundreds of people with a core antibody positive, so likely past controlled infection, that the rates of reactivation were very low. So one just needs to monitor these patients very closely. Drug-drug interactions, this is really deserving of a 30-minute talk at the, the Hep C uh, symposium that uh, IS puts on. But, um, it's just vitally important. So set up a system. I'm showing you the University of Liverpool website. Um, and this is just an example of some uh, commonly used drug, oxcarbazepine, which uh, cannot be, um, I shouldn't say commonly, but you know, you see that medication used um, uh, as a mood stabilizer or as an anti-seizure medication, uh, cannot be co-administered. So very useful to try to uh, work things. And you notice that you can type in just a few letters and get, get, get at the drug. So the menu of options kind of, you might think, looks like this. There's no wine list, right? No alcohol. This is a dry restaurant. Um, and uh, you, like HIV, maybe you just pick from different classes, and you can make your favorite regimen. And sometimes you'll do that. Like, for instance, um, maybe only diclatasvir plus sofosvir is what you can compatibilize with your HIV regimen. So you're picking a la carte off this menu. But in reality, the menus are limited. They're kind of more like, you're kind of going to combine them like this. And so they're not going to be, you know, kind of a choice. And in fact, it, the real choice is what does the insurance company want to offer you? And this, this says, uh, please ask your server whether ribavirin is also needed. Now, I pulled the Georgia Medicaid fee for service. How many of you have seen this form? Anyone? Anyone? Or your, maybe your staff doesn't. So one issue is that members who abuse alcohol or intravenous drugs must be enrolled in the substance use program. Um, so that's a, that's a version of a restriction that's present in many Medicaid programs. And um, you know, it's somewhat of a holdover from the uh, other era. How many people recognize this menu? Anyone? OK, a few people do. They might have been tipped off. Uh, uh, Kristen, do we have an audio clue? <coughs> I want to hear it. Anyone? Signs up. So what's this menu from? What episode? Soup Nazi. Excellent. Good job. All right. So I think this happened like 22 years ago, not quite 25. So, um, so this is what it feels like often when you're trying to get hepatitis C meds. Just it gets denied, and it's really frustrating. No soup for you. Um, but I don't mean to make light of it, but I do want to equip you a little bit with the rationale for why we should be fighting these restrictions and advocating for our patients. Because what we're seeing with that rising opioid epidemic and increasing incidence, we're seeing a prevalent infection that's not decreasing due to those treatment restrictions and also due to poor linkage to care or lack of knowledge of infection. And then people can leave by either being cured 
or dying from the infection, but we just have a variety of barriers that um, really prevent that big thing in the middle from contracting the way we'd like, so we don't have over three million Americans infected. And so a very brief study, I'll just try to run through it, and it's nicely previewed by Dr. Cunningham, just sort of what people use when they're on opioid agonist therapy. Uh, this is a, a one drug, and the more important thing is like their urine tox screens. They're floridly positive through their treatment, floridly, with multiple substances. And yet, this is their adherence. So as long as they're linked in and they're seeing you, these are pe people on opioid agonist therapy, they're doing great. They're getting great cure rates. And here's the kicker. In the Netherlands, um, they have treated 70% of their co-infected patients, the pool in the middle that's potentially able to infect others. And they're gonna work on this last bit. Now the people who are not getting treated are former drug users, perhaps with long time infection and women. Here's the good news, when they de-restricted treatment in late 2015 in the Netherlands, they saw a decline of acute hepatitis C cases in their HIV population, this was presented at CROI, of 50% in within one year. I mean, the Netherlands are a small country, you know, and people do come in and out of it, so, you know, imported cases and whatnot. Now, was this due to behavioral changes in the course of the year? Well, the other markers, such as syphilis, um, uh, LGV, did not change. So suggestive that the behaviors are ongoing that transmit uh, hepatitis C in this population. This is one of the first demonstrations of curious prevention. I could show you model after model suggesting that it's not about the patient, oh, they'll just become reinfected because their drug use will relapse. So. We have to work on the cascade of care, and just visually, if you recall the cascade from, from um, the last talk, and from Dimitri's talk perhaps, this looks worse. This looks worse. And so we really have to work on each of these steps, and uh, all the things that we learn from HIV will be important. So the take home, I know we're running late, and it's time to go, and I'm the last thing between you and your nice commute home or uh, your dinner. But um, is that we do have great regimens. You've heard that before. Um, there's certain nuances, such as uh, cirrhosis, resistance-associated variants. Sometimes you can shorten the course. Special populations are being addressed, such as renal disease, et cetera. But it's really about screening. It's really about linkage to care. All the things that we talked about in various themes. And we can cure everyone in the United States if we just were able to, to, to treat everyone and we really need to move towards those models. Thank you for your attention. So we've got just a few minutes for questions. We'll do it very fast, because it's towards the end of the day. Um, what do you do with a co-infected patient newly diagnosed, not on any treatment, gene type one, liver enzymes elevated? Do you treat with the ARVs first and then cure the hep C? Or other way around? Yes, so the uh, question is about the treatment of, uh, what do you do first, HIV or hep C? You have a patient on treatment for neither. I think HIV has a more immediate um, risk, uh, as well as potentially devastating transmission risk. Uh, I don't want to underscore, uh, uh, undersell the, the transmission of hep C either, but HIV, for all the reasons discussed earlier, treatment is prevention, you kind of want to get that under control uh, sooner rather than later. So I would focus on that first. The other thing is that compared to 15 years ago, we have gentler medications on the liver, and so picking one of the, almost any one of those novel regimens is really benign on the liver. So even if they have those crazy LFTs that can be sometimes seen in acute infection, hep C infection, you're allowed to start antiretrovirals, and it's usually done safely. Okay. 
Quick question and answer. Uh, Andy Vernon, thank you. Um, I had a couple of questions about uh, t two aspects. One is, is related to the pharmacokinetics of the drugs. We didn't really have an opportunity to get into that much. I wondered how much that varies among patients and whether failure due to individual pharmacokinetics is a problem, suggesting that there would be value in testing in, in somehow assessing absorption in individuals before you commit them to what's a fifty to $100,000 course of therapy. Yes, absolutely. So the major issues regarding pharmacokinetics, um, the, the one issue that I discussed regarding absorption and acid use is very serious, and so one needs to uh, address that. Uh, otherwise, it seems that if you're off that, that um, at least viral responses are kind of uniform. Um, almost everyone becomes viral negative within two to four weeks. There are occasional slower responders that become truly negative at eight weeks, but even that kinetic profile doesn't seem to affect things. And you know, that's a complex interplay. That's not only about drug levels and whatnot. Um, so, um, and then uh, there are drugs, uh, rifampin, St. John's Ward, and whatnot, that are, uh, and the oxcarbazepine, and other things that you just really can't co-administer anything for. So, so drug-drug interactions may influence um, certain um, issues. Um, so, so your mention of rifampin is appropriate for me, because I'm coming from a TB direction. Um, yeah. So the second set of questions has to do with adherence and whether the community considered what, whether, how, how much is adherence an issue mm -hmm. uh, in, in patients and whether simply the use of DOT would be appropriate because it's a relatively modest cost intervention and then you don't have to worry about it here. So DOT, um, the, to repeat it, is, is, a, is a proven intervention for TB. And um, uh, for HIV, it's that there were pilot projects. The problem there is maintaining that for long periods of time. But right now, uh, I'm part of a multi-center trial based uh, at Montefiore, where uh, Dr. Cunningham works. Uh, Alan Litwin is leading a trial looking at um, DOT in methadone clinics. That's very straightforward, right? You can co-administer with methadone. Now, how do you do it in the community? That's a big question. And we're actually using novel smartphone technology. Uh, the other arm of that trial is getting patient navigation. So, um, you know, kind of another concept familiar for many of the HIV providers in the audience, helping patients through it, equipping them, making them, uh, you know, helping with uh, positive messages about their health and, and counseling has also been uh, tested as another adherence strategy. Uh, this is Dr. Alvarez here in uh, Atlanta, 30315. We have a ton of, of hep C. I'd like to say one thing and ask you, Juan. One is we do have um, a net safety net for our HIV patients. We do not have that for mono-infected hep C patients with no insurance. And that becomes really bad when they are decompensated cirrhotics that have to go to the liver center. No way to send them. Number two is the insurance companies are attached to the eight weeks. So they actually, despite all of my fighting, will actually send the patients either six weeks, they did, or eight weeks, and ask them to get, to ask your doctor to get a viral load. Well, most people are gonna be negative at about four weeks. And then they decide whether they will continue to give you more medications. Right. So my question is what happens if you disagree with that and you need to continue or you have data that says you should, what do you do with patients who have those breaks in treatment thanks to 
you're Thanks a to friendly insurance company. You know, it's amazing how breaks in treatment happen for a variety of reasons, not only for that reason. Um, patients get into rehab or they're hospitalized, they miss a few doses. Um, I don't want to say these, these medications, you should miss a lot of doses, but um, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's one of these unfortunate things that sometimes you have a good meaning system, like what's the intention of that system? It's really just to ensure that they're taking the med and that's what the week four RNA is about. Are they taking it, really? It's not about extension of therapy or other factors. And so that's well-intentioned, but it results in these crazy things that happen where you have to check at week three because they need it by week four to deliver the second medication. All I can say is that if uh, there are any Medicaid people in the room or, or people who are involved in that, that we should probably try to make it easier on providers. I mean, come on, like, we are, we are doing our best for our patient, we're trying to do what's, what's right, and rather than fight us, um, why, why, why do that? And so, um, we're hoping that the guidance can help, like if you need to write a letter for 12 weeks or something because of certain characteristics, there's uh, the HCV guidelines.org, which can detail some of these situations. Um, but believe me, we fought a lot with insurers for extension of therapy when, uh, and, and, and other things. And, and sometimes they say yes, so it's, once you get someone on the phone, that's reasonable. That's not so easy getting on the phone. So we're out of time. Um, thank you, uh, Arthur. Yeah. Well, good job. Thank you. Yep. And, and Dr. Lennox will come up here. But uh, this has been another great conference. Uh, thank you all for attending. Thanks to the ISUSA for their wonderful support again. Um, you will be getting post-test uh, items. Remember about the uh, uh, capsid inhibitor. That might be good to know. It, it would really be good to remember about the transporters that, like cobacistat that interfere with creatinine secretion and might very rapidly cause creatinine to go up. Most of you spent eight minutes on that question on your pretest, so hopefully it'll be easy for you this time. Um, and just a wonderful day. Jeff, I'll let you have the last word. Thanks, Mike. Um, we would like to thank all of you for sticking it out and everybody who attended. Please remember to recycle your lanyards. Remember to go to the website to claim your CME credits. Uh, we'd like to thank the faculty for their presentations and most especially the funders who have helped to put this meeting on for 25 years and the IAS USA for their commitment to continuing medical education in the field of HIV and hepatitis C. So thank you all very much and we'll see you next year.